one 9646 is the number. Get a hold of James Savan. The rest of the uh, folks at the firm, you need some uh, some information, want to ask some questions, that's the number. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca as well. As we kick off another edition of the Insurance and Injury Law Show, guys, we always get to the week that was some cases. Who is going first this week? Let me kick it off, uh, John. Let's talk about an LTD case that one of our lawyers in Ottawa is handling. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to outline the scenario really quickly. This is a lady that uh, came to us because she was cut off LTD uh, late last year, 2017. It doesn't matter what the reasons were. The point is she was cut off and told by her LTD, her long-term disability insurer, that she's not entitled to any more long-term disability payments. So we got involved. Uh, We didn't appeal anything. We simply started the legal claim. Next thing we know, the insurance company hires uh, a defense lawyer, and the defense lawyer comes to our lawyer in Ottawa and says, guess what, I'll offer you $6,000. And by the way, this is, a, this is a modest claim. We're not talking about you know, a huge, huge claim. This lady is, is, is a bit older. We, we, we don't really have a lot to play with, but in our opinion, she should not have been cut off LTD. So anyways, the defense lawyer off the bat uh, offers $6,000, and, and we counter with $75,000. Uh, Hold on, six thousand to seventy-five thousand. Yeah, we're, we're saying we're saying okay. that uh, you know our client will accept seventy-five thousand dollars, and uh, you know they're saying we're going to offer six thousand. And of course, initially she was denied everything, right? Yeah. Uh, so two weeks ago, okay. um, I speak with the lawyer, the, with 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 our lawyer in Ottawa, and he says, well, they've come back now and uh, they've offered thirty thousand dollars. Big jump. So of course, you know, we negotiate as yeah. well. My point is this. We are now at a certain number. I'm not going to say what number that is, but they are at higher than 30,000. We're going to resolve this claim within a matter of weeks. But the lesson is for people out there is that, look, even if you are denied long-term disability or you're, you're cut off long-term disability and you think that there is no chance in hell that you're going to get a dime from the insurance company, don't assume that's true. They are assuming you will simply walk away from this claim. They're assuming you're not going to get legal advice. And what this lady did is she listened to the show and she called us. We gave her the advice to start a claim. She went with us. She trusted us. And we're going to be able to get her compensation uh, when, you know, if she hadn't contacted us and she simply walked away, all that money would have been left in the insurance company's pocket. So that's the lesson. Don't assume that if you're cut off or uh, denied long-term disability that there is no recourse because oftentimes there is. Well, it's, am- it's amazing. You know, 6000 is like, okay. And then you're like, okay, 75 it right away. Right away, they open up the purse and say 30. So they know it's sitting there. Right. Listen, I just want to make sure that people understand. It's not as though we simply wrote a letter, right? Right. There was a lot of preparation involved. And this is one of the issues that we often struggle with. Uh, You know, people come to us after trying to appeal the denial once, twice, three times. When we look at the the appeal material, uh, often what we find is that, you know, they haven't given the insurance company everything. And when they have, the insurance company still uh, ignored it. And so, you know, it takes the heavy hand of the law sometimes, and you need to know how to exercise that to force the insurance company to the table. And again, that's what we do. And, uh, you know, if we tell you you have a case, chances are you have a case. Chances are we're not telling you that, you know, just because you want to hear it. It's because we think we can help you. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number. It is help at the insurance lawyer. Say, hey, James, how are you, pal? What do you got going on? Well, I have a, a case that I think illustrates a point about disability claims that a lot of people may not appreciate if you haven't been through this before. A lot of people just assume that all insurance or all insurance companies are the same and that every adjuster who's making decisions is the same and then the decisions will therefore be consistent. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
So I have a case that illustrates this point rather perfectly. Lady came to me last year. She has a disability claim. She's off work because of uh, depression and anxiety. She has a disability policy through her employer, but she's also purchased an additional disability policy privately. She's got two policies going. So she came to me because she had already applied for the policy through her employer and they'd already denied her. So she came to me, we started a claim, we have a mediation coming up in a few months. While we had issued the claim, she still had not heard back from the other disability insurer, the one she had purchased privately. And she was, you know, assuming that they were also going to deny her benefits as the the one through her employer had yeah. done. And so I said to her, well, you know, if they do, no problem, we'll start a claim against them as well. And, uh, you know, we'll just proceed against both of them. Well, guess what happened? The private insurer, the one that she purchased herself, they approved her claim. So this is two disability insurers with substantively the exact same policy. There are subtle differences, but not as it relates to whether she qualifies initially. Okay. Same policy, essentially, same person, same fact scenario, one of them approves, one of them doesn't. There is no consistency. Um, each adjuster is going to look at it differently and use their own rationale, whatever that may be, to make their decision. And so, you know, this is a perfect example of that. Now, having said that, um, the two-year uh, change of definition is coming up where she will only qualify for her benefits under either policy if she can't do any occupation. It's a tougher test. And she's already been told by her private insurer that they are not going to be extending benefits beyond that time. So we're going to bring them in into the loop as well, too. Yeah. So we're going to be moving against both of them in any case. But the point of the matter is two different insurance companies coming to two totally different decisions based on the exact same wow. facts. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number to call. Help at the insurance We'll get to some of your emails and questions as well. We'll get into the injury calculator when we come back as well. Short break right here. The insurance and injury law show. Global News Radio six forty Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. The number. Help at the insurance We'll get your emails here in just a, a few minutes. Savannah, you got something else to talk about? Yes, I want to talk about another long term disability case. This is an individual who came to us uh, again very recently. She, uh, she, she started uh, long-term disability in April 2016. She has fibromyalgia, leg swelling, fatigue, headaches, a whole bunch of things. Uh, and she's getting about 2500 bucks uh, monthly from LTD. She received notification from the insurance company that she's going to be cut off as of April of this year mm-hmm. because the two years are coming up. And, you know, when we were talking to her, she said, well, you know, my policy only goes for two years. But, you know, is there anything else that I can get? And, you know, we heard that and immediately we thought, wait a second, it's very rare to have LTD policies that will go only for two years. Generally, what happens is that people get confused. They are told that they're going to be cut off at the two-year mark, not understanding that what the insurance company is actually saying is that they don't think the person will qualify beyond the two-year mark. That's what James was talking about just before we went to break. This change of definition date, and this is really, really important for people to understand. Long-term disability policies, the vast majority of them uh, contain a criteria that says that in order to qualify for long-term disability for the first two years, the question is, can you do your own job? Beyond the two years, the test becomes, can you do any job for which you're suited for by training, education, or experience? So if you're in that situation where the two years are approaching, you may be getting a phone call or a letter or an email from your adjuster or even just having a discussion with your adjuster 
and out of the blue, you're told, you know, your payments are going to be ending. Right. And, you know, it could be that they will explain to you this change of definition uh, criteria and, and why it is that they're cutting you off. But, you know, once they're telling you your payments will end, you may not be hearing anything after that. So you may be assuming that, well, I only have LTD for two years. It's very, very rare to have these kinds of policies that only last for two years. The majority of them uh, last well beyond that, usually till age 65. But again, some policies go beyond age 65. So very, very important to look at your specific policy. Don't make the mistake that this lady has almost made. It's a good thing that she called us no because we, we looked at the policy. Uh, we looked at the deny letter and it was you know, very obvious that she's entitled to compensation. And also we looked at the medical uh, documentation she gave us. No question in our mind that the insurance company is cutting her off um, incorrectly, that they should not be denying her LTD beyond the two-year mark based on the doctor's reports that we've seen. And, you know, it's a very simple thing for us. We're going to start a claim against the insurance company. The good thing is that she's not, not getting cut off until April. So, you know, we are right now... Uh, Nipping the bud, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we still have about a month uh, or so uh, to go. And, um, you know, we'll be able to get into discussions with the insurance company and to limit the amount of time that she won't have any income. And that's really the key. Yeah. Right? Remember, people who are on LTD are people who have worked up until a certain point. Now they don't have any income coming in. They are relying on LTD to pay the mortgage, to pay the expenses at home, you know, kids' uh, activities, etc., you want to make sure that you start these legal claims as soon as you think or you're told that you're going to get cut off. Uh, if you don't, then you know you you are essentially risking right. being um, you know without any income for a very long time. Make the call. Keep the number one triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. Help at the insurance Give me some details on the injury calculator. That's an online tool. We've been no. talking about this for quite a while. It's a database of cases from across Canada, and what it does is it allows you if you've been injured through no fault of your own, be it a car accident, a slip and fall, you know, you, you, you broke your hip or you got a concussion, you want to know, does it make sense for me to start a legal claim from a damages standpoint, right. right? Let's assume that fault is not an issue. You're not at fault. Someone else is at fault. But you want to know, does it make sense? And, you know, what, what do people do? They start Googling, you know, how much is an, uh, you know, a fractured uh, uh, ankle worth? How much is a concussion worth? A ba- back pain? Uh, you don't have to do that. Don't go to uh, you know to Google f- f- for that information. It's going to get skewed and and it's just incorrect. This calculator is a database of cases, similar cases such as yours across the country. And what happens is that when you go onto it, and we're going to do a sample of it when we go through some of the emails that we've received, uh, it, uh, it 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 will give you a result at the end, a range of what you can expect to get for your pain and suffering. So, for example, if you fractured your hip because you slipped and fell, you could be looking at, let's say, ninety dollars to $120,000 for pain and suffering. And again, remember, every case is specific. We would have to actually examine your case specifically, but we are looking at other cases that have gone all the way to court. What have judges awarded these individuals for these particular injuries? So when you go through the calculator, it gives you a range, a dollar figure of what you can be looking at, and then you can click Submit. We get a submission. We can have a chat with you. Remember something else. That calculator only deals with your pain and suffering. Right. It doesn't deal with other types of expenses. Maybe you have a family member who's helping you now, you know, who, who's spending many, many hours driving you to appointments, taking care of you. They are entitled to certain compensation as well under the law. Maybe you, know, you can't work or you have difficulty working. Again, you may be entitled to more compensation for the lost income or the loss of competitive advantage. Or you got to retrofit your house or do other exactly, stuff. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. Every case is, is different. But this calculator, which by the way is anonymous, it'll take you 20 seconds literally to, to use it and to get a result. 
Uh, it's been used by thousands of people, and it's just a starting point. You don't want to call a lawyer. You don't want to email a lawyer. You just want to know what is my injury worth, dollar value, from a pain and suffering standpoint. Go to injurycalculator.ca and get the result. We'll take a short break. one 9646 the number. Again, injurycalculator.ca is the website you want to check out. Email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca as well. Lots more coming up right here. Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. 1-888-990-9646, help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We'll get to an email from uh, from Ben here very shortly. Question though, guys, you know, it's, it's about the time of year or it has been the time of year. Slip and falls are happening all over the place. Uh, dealing with cases uh, where a person slipped and fell in a store versus, say, an icy sidewalk outside. What should people do in that case? Well, there's a very big difference between slipping and falling on a sidewalk, a municipal sidewalk, and inside a store. And it's really important that you understand what that difference is. In Ontario, if you have any potential claim against a municipality, there is a law. It's called the Municipal Act. And it requires you within 10 days of that event happening... Within 10 days, you have to notify the municipality that the event has happened. So if you slip and fall on a sidewalk in the City of Toronto, you have to notify the clerk of the City of Toronto at City Hall that you have fallen, where you've fallen, um, what time, what day, what injuries you've suffered. You have to give them that notice in writing in order to make sure that you preserve your ability to go ahead with the claim if you decide to do so later on. If you don't do that, within the 10 days, then the city can claim that you missed this notice period and that you might be barred. You might not be. There are there are reasons why a court might extend that, but you don't want to have to rely on that. You want to make sure if that happens, if you slip and fall on a municipal sidewalk, you call us right away. We're going to help you to get that notice into the, into the clerk at, at City Hall as soon as possible and make sure that it has everything that's required mm-hmm. so that you preserve your claim. You may or may not have a claim down the road. You may decide that you don't want to. Just do it. But you want to make sure that you have the ability to do it down the road. And unless you give that notice right away, you don't. Now, that's one difference between the two of them. But there are other differences that work the other way as well, too. If you slip and fall in a store... There are going to be some considerations that wouldn't apply if you did it on a sidewalk. For example, if you're in a store, there's almost always going to be video surveillance. So you're going to want to write um, to the the store owner right away and ask them to preserve the video because oftentimes they're going to tape over that. And you want to make sure that if there's a record of your client slipping and falling, that it's preserved. And if you do that as an individual, they may just ignore you, particularly if you don't do it in writing. So it's better to have that coming from a lawyer. It'll scare them a little bit. Um, there's also going to be an incident report, which you can get your hands on, maintenance logs. Sometimes there's going to be witnesses. And also there's going to be you know specific policies and procedures that the store will have about how they maintain um, the, the store, the cleanliness, right. and so forth that you want to make sure that you get your hands on. So there are different considerations for both. In either case, give us a call as soon as it happens, and we can help you out. And since you got a cell phone, in another case, take pictures of everything too, right? Good to have. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just one thing that I want to mention on this. Um, when I used to work as a defense lawyer, uh, and the firm I was at was defending municipalities, I defended uh, Toronto, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Cornwall, just a whole bunch of municipalities across Ontario. Uh, I remember one that comes to mind where we went to a mediation, and I was representing the city, 
and that notice requirement wasn't complied with, and I didn't think that they could get within the exceptions to the notice. Mm-hmm. And this was a serious claim. There was a fracture involved. The person uh, had difficulty working. It was a case that otherwise would have been valued easily, easily in the low to mid six figures. And I'll tell you, John, we settled it for under $50,000. Wow. Because the other side understood that they made a mistake. And, and it wasn't the individual. It was the lawyer that screwed up. Uh, the lawyer actually uh, was contacted within days after the slip and fall and just didn't understand. And it was one of those sole practitioners that, you know, says yeah. that they can do absolutely everything. Uh, you know, I, I do wills and estates and I do real estate and I do family law and I do slip and fall. I do sushi and I do everything else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Barista. So it, it, that's what happened there. And, and you know, I, I have a ton of those stories. I'm sure James does as well, where we've been on the other side and we've seen how these claims, which otherwise would be very serious and worth a lot of money to individuals who've suffered yeah. terrible injuries, get decimated because the lawyers just don't do what they're supposed to do, either because they don't know what they're supposed to do or they just don't care. The other thing I would add, though, is, you know, you don't have to worry about, oh, I'm going to have to pay a lawyer in order to do this. No, this isn't really part of the core of what we do. You know, giving notice to the city is really a pretty simple thing. You just want to make sure that you've done it properly. So if you want to give us a call, I'm more than happy to walk you through the process, make sure that you send it to exactly the right person and tell you exactly what you want to put in there. And I'm not going to charge you for that advice. I'm more than happy to talk to you about your potential claim. I'm going to tell you exactly what you have to do. And if you decide after that that you want to go ahead with it, then we can talk about retaining my firm and what that involves. But, you know, to just call us and to send in the notice period, I'm not, I've never charged anyone just for doing that, and I never will. John, on a different note altogether, I, I just actually literally now just got a submission on the Injury Calculator website. So let me just read you some mm-hmm. of the particulars. Yep. Uh, this is a 43-year-old individual. He's from Ottawa. He was involved in a car accident on February 19th. Uh, he provides the accident location. He was not at fault. Uh, he says, um, I'm working less hours, fewer jobs, no overtime because of my injury. Uh, his injury area is to his neck. Uh, he has a sprain, strain, bruising. The injury calculator came back and said that, you know, according to uh, the database of cases that we have where, where we've run uh, all of these variables, you could be entitled to forty to $80,000 worth of, of, you know, pain and suffering. Right. And again, remember, this is a starting point, but this individual has now chosen to submit this consultation to us, and we're going to get in touch with him. And look, let's say for a second that his pain and suffering is worth $50,000, $60,000. If he's unable to work, uh, and, and let's say you know he earns $50,000 a year, sure. he's unable to work for two years, just do the math, right? Income loss alone can be dwarfing the pain and suffering component of your claim. So it's very important that if you're using that tool, you know, that you actually contact us uh, beyond just submitting, beyond just getting a result, because we can tell you if there are other types of damages, categories of compensation that, you know, you could be entitled to. And remember, when you talk to us, we're not charging you a dime. James is right. We're giving you this information for free. If you want to act on it, that's great. That's, that's your thing. If you don't want to act on it, again, as long as you know what your options are, we've done our job. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is that number to reiterate again and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We'll get to Ben's email as soon as we come back, and yours as well. Send them to that address if you haven't checked it out yet. Injurycalculator.ca as well. It's the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, six forty Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Get to Ben's email. He says. Uh, my 72-year-old mother fell six months ago on a slippery floor in her apartment building and broke her hip. She had two surgeries, and my wife is now taking care of her. I'm just wondering if we can get some compensation for my wife. She spends about six hours a day with my mother now. Wait. 
Yeah, well, there's a few things that we need to consider before we answer this right. question. The first thing is whether or not uh, Ben's mother has a claim. You have to figure that out first, because in order for anyone else in uh, in the family to be able to advance a claim, Ben's mom has to have a claim against someone. Presumably, in this case, the someone would be you know the owner or whoever's doing the maintenance of the apartment building. But you want to make sure that you have a solid basis to proceed on that because. Um, it, it's not as though someone who you know owns an apartment building is held to a standard of perfection. You know, if someone is walking behind someone else carrying a cup of water and they spill the water and you happen to walk over it three seconds later, you can't say that the owner of the apartment building should have mopped it up in those three seconds. Right, right, right. So there is an element of reasonableness here. But let's assume for the moment that Ben's mother does have a claim against the apartment building. When someone is injured... Their immediate family, which includes their their children, their spouse, um, their parents, their grandparents, their grandchildren, all have the ability to bring a claim under what's called the Family Law Act. So the Family Law Act allows you to advance claims for various things when a loved one, someone in your immediate family, is injured. This includes expenses that you've incurred. Um, it includes um, if you know your loved one has passed away as a result, funeral expenses. Um, it even includes things like travel expenses if you have to come from somewhere out of town in order to visit your loved one while they're recovering. Um, it also includes if you've lost income because your loved one has been injured um, or if you've provided them with services, as in this case, um, you can be entitled to compensation for that. And the loss of care, guidance, and companionship. So any damage to the relationship that you've had that you've relied on for all those years. So those are all the various things that family members are entitled to advance claims on. So the next question becomes whether or not Ben's wife is going to be entitled because she's not, strictly speaking, Ben's mother's daughter. She's her daughter-in-law. Right. So generally speaking, she probably is going to be fine. There is um, language in the Family Law Act that says if you know, essentially Ben's mother has taken it upon herself to treat Ben's wife as part of the family, as a daughter, then she's going to be able to sure. advance a claim. But that's a matter of fact. In most cases, and it would seem in this particular case, given, you know, how Ben's wife is helping his mother, that that relationship probably exists. But that's, you know, just a question that has to be answered. Right. You know, I, I, I can imagine there are, you know, some scenarios where there are in-laws that don't have that kind of relationship, so you just want to make sure that you do before you advance that kind of a claim. Or if the daughter-in-law just, you know, came over from Botswana to help out for a week, she's not always going to be there. She's not known as the caregiver, right? That type of thing? Yeah, that's true. I mean, if it's someone who is living far away who, you know, really has never spent any time right. with this particular family member, it's a much tougher case to make out. Sure. doesn't necessarily seem to be the case here, but you'd want to find out first. Yeah. All right, so just to add a few more points, I think everything James said is completely accurate, but remember, I mean, you're not just dealing with what uh, Ben's mother is owed, and incidentally, I want to go through the injury calculator quickly to yep. figure out what that is from a, from a pain and suffering standpoint, uh, but you know, what happens if she's going to need future care, right? If she's going to have uh, expenses, out-of-pocket expenses that she's going to have to incur, again, those are all compensable. Um, you know, th there's another claim that we have to be mindful of. And without going into, in, into the technicalities, uh, I'm just going to mention them briefly. Whenever you're injured in Ontario, uh, not as a result of a car accident, but because of a slip and fall or anything else, OHIP is entitled to advance a claim as well. And why is that important? Because, you know, you go to the doctor, to the hospital, somebody's paying for that. It's OHIP, right? If you are advancing a legal claim for compensation, but you don't include OHIP, on that claim, if your lawyer doesn't do that, 
you are potentially exposed, right, down the road. OHIP may come to you and say, you owe us that money. So again, very important that you go to a lawyer that understands that kind of a law because I've had cases where, you know, people have come to me after the fact saying they've settled, their lawyers have settled the case, but now OHIP is coming after them. Now, I want to go through the injury calculator really, really quickly. So again, injurycalculator.ca. Let's look at uh, Ben Mother's scenario. So we put in the accident date, uh, the location, she's 72, it was a slip and fall. These are all drop-down menus. Who was at fault for the accident? Someone else. Uh, Did the injury affect your income? No. And here we get to the category that best describes the injury of this individual. We are going to select torso. And then we have a choice between hip, ribs, and pelvis. So we choose hip. She broke her hip. She fractured it. Um, And it's asking, does she require surgery? Did she have surgery? Yes. All right. And then it tells us, according to our survey of Canadian cases, you may be entitled to 90000 all the way up to $165,000 for your pain and suffering. Again, remember, every case is individual. We have to look at the specifics, how it's impacted functionality-wise, the individual. Uh, But again, this range uh, comes from the, the database of cases, similar type injury cases that have gone all the way to court and, you know, where judges have given uh, awards that would range uh, $90,000 to $165,000 for somebody who suffered a hip fracture. So again, phenomenal tool. You can go and you can use it. And uh, that's it. And then you can close the browser or you can submit uh, for a consultation so that we can get in touch with you and talk to you about the entirety of the case. Injurycalculator.ca is that website. Want to touch on another one when we come back. I know you uh, talk about all the time, and that is fightformyltd.com. That's on the way. The phone number, one 990 9646 And it is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. More of your emails coming up as well. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. 1-888-990-9646 is the number. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. As promised, before we get into this, uh, now a question for you. Fightformyltd.com. Give me some details on it, brother. Okay, that's another fantastic yep. uh, website. Again, it's free. And what it does, it allows you to answer uh, uh, five basic questions about your long-term disability case in the event you're having problems with your insurance company. Uh, and you click submit, I get that email and I'll tell you instantaneously whether or not you have a case. Sometimes we'll need more information. And so you'll get a call from somebody at our office asking for some information. Perhaps we need to see the medical documentation you submitted. Perhaps we want to see the denial letter. But generally speaking, those five basic questions that you're going to answer, that's going to take you about 10, 15 seconds to answer on that website uh, will allow us, will allow me to tell you if in fact you have a legitimate legal claim against your insurance company for what they're doing to you. Let's turn to long-term disability now. So what do you do when the LTD insurer says that their doctor disagrees with your client's doctor? Which one trumps? What do you do? What's the next step? Um, When we're talking about a treating doctor versus a LTD doctor, um, I assume we're talking about in the context of if this were to go to trial. And that's not something that happens frequently at all with these cases. In fact, it's incredibly rare that it happens. But ultimately... You know, if you are a lawyer who's handling a claim like this, you want to know which opinion is going to be preferred down the road because that is, you know, what's involved in assessing which side has a stronger argument. And so what we have to look at is what are the factors that a judge would consider in looking at the opinion of one doctor versus another. So things like how reasonable is the opinion? Is there a basis for the opinion in medical science that can be supported? That could go either way. It depends on what the doctors have said. What are the qualifications of each doctor? Again, you know, in a vacuum, I don't know which doctor has stronger qualifications. So that could go either way. 
what is the underlying foundation of the opinion? So here we're looking at how much time has the doctor spent with this person? What is their knowledge of the patient's um, history? In that case, almost always, in fact, always, the treating doctor is going to be favored as opposed to a doctor hired by the insurance company who in many cases has never even met the person. Hence the word treating. Right. right? Um, And even where they do meet them, you know, you're talking about maybe a half hour or if I'm really being generous, a one hour assessment versus someone who, you know, may have been treating this person for, you know, three, four years (laughs) over the course of, you know, you know, however many appointments. So there's really not much of a contest there. And then the other issue is any potential bias. And generally speaking, um, issues of bias in this case, you know, if you're talking about a doctor that is consistently hired by one insurance company, um, there is, you know, inherently some bias in there that is baked into the opinion. And I don't think anyone's going to miss that. On the other hand, though, you know, a treating doctor may have somewhat of a personal relationship with their patient. Um, and so you have to factor that out as well, too. But generally speaking, the treating doctor is going to be in a better position on that factor as well. And in most cases, as long as um, there is no significant um, advantage to the insurance doctor in terms of their qualifications, the treating doctor is going to be preferred. Get to an email from Shane. says, uh, my little brother was denied long-term disability because the insure, uh, insurance adjuster rather said that their doctor did not agree that he is disabled. But I checked out their doctor and he's uh, just a family doctor, whereas my brother has two specialists that say he is disabled. Can we fight them on this? Yes. Done. Yes. The answer is absolutely <laughs> yes, uh, Shane. And again, it goes back to what James was talking about and what we keep talking about on this show, which is that the insurance companies oftentimes will deny completely legitimate claims and they will use doctors either who don't have the experience or the expertise uh, or just the know-how uh, to assess these claims. And even if they used a doctor that is appropriate in the circumstances, again... Put, and that's not that often. And that's not that yeah. often. I agree. Exactly. Put those doctors uh, against the treating physicians who are treating this individual. You know, just think about it from a common sense standpoint. If you're a judge and you're listening to two sides of the story, here you have a hired gun, oftentimes somebody who's worked at the insurance uh, companies, the insurance industry for a long time, and you can prove that. On the other side, doctors who are legitimately interested in getting this individual better, but have said that despite the treatments, this person is still disabled. Who is the judge going to believe? I mean, just think about that. You know, so if you're in that situation, don't simply assume that what the insurance company is saying or doing is, you know, the final word. Again, I tell people, give us a call. Let us take a look at the documentation. And by the way, when the insurance doctors provide their opinions, generally speaking, they're in writing. So you can ask for those opinions, right? You're entitled to those. I would give those opinions to, you know, your, your treating specialists or your treating doctors. Have them assess those opinions. I, I can guarantee you that you're going to find an error here or there uh, that, that those doctors are making, and not the least of which is the actual opinion that this person is able to work. And by the way, sometimes, oftentimes, these insurance doctors are not even assessing these individuals. They're simply looking at the medical records. Again, big difference between just reviewing medical records and actually assessing in person the, the disabled individual.
That sounds a little weak just to be looking at records. Yeah, it's very weak. Um, The other thing, though, I would add, you know, this is maybe just my experience. Maybe I'm wrong here. Um, But it just seems to me that in all the cases that I've seen, every time I've seen an insurance doctor who's been hired at that stage of the proceeding to comment on on a disability file, just maybe it's just a coincidence. But I don't remember seeing any of the best doctors in Canada on those lists. I've not seen (laughs) one doctor that I recognized as being a leader in their field. Now, maybe that's just me. I mean, I'm fairly familiar with the best doctors um, in most specialties at this point, given what I do for a living. I mean, it's just relevant to, you know, our job. And it's just, you know, you don't come across them on the on the insurance really? at that stage. Now, oh. later on, you know, if there was a case that was, you know, really contentious and it was going to trial, then they might hire the big boys for that. But it seems at the early stage, you just don't see them very often. By the way, on that point, it's a very good point. Uh, so when we get involved, uh, you know, to bolster the case, so not only are we dealing with an insurance doctor uh, who, you know, we question their uh, credentials to be able to make the assessments and opinions that they've come up with uh, and, and put them side by side with the treating physicians here, we actually also go to the top doctors and we retain them again Smart. on behalf of our clients to make sure that we are advancing our clients' interests and going in there with full guns blazing. And that's, again, one of the reasons why the insurance companies end up coming to the table and opting to resolve the claims as opposed to going all the way to court where they know they're going to get hammered. But, James, I mean, regardless of, of which way you go, if the insurance company and you're on disability wants you to go see their doctors, you got to go. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, unless they're being completely unreasonable, right. unless they're telling you that you have to have, you know, 10 assessments over a two-week period, and, you know, two of them are in Botswana, and, you know, one of them is, you know, out on uh, Vancouver Island, right. you know, as long as they're being reasonable, yes, you need yeah. to comply with their reasonable request to have you assess. But what's reasonable, what's not, is a whole other question, of course. We'll get to more of your emails. The phone call, one 990 9646 If you haven't checked it out yet, injurycalculator.ca. Find out what the pain and suffering component of your claim should be. Very simple. Takes just a few seconds to go through that. You can either uh, disappear at that point anonymous or click the button at the bottom and get a hold of James or Savannah at that point. Lots more insurance and injury law show is on the way. Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. one 990 is the number. Help the insurance lawyer Get to an email from Jan here. Says, my husband has been on LTD for eight months for uh, severe depression. The only thing he does on occasion is walk the dog. And the insur- uh, insurance uh, insurer rather recently sent us a letter saying that they conducted surveillance, which showed him running after the dog. So they'll cut him off. They said he can go back to work if he can run after a dog. My husband is 38 and works as a financial analyst. His uh, psychologist sees him every week and says that he should absolutely not be forced back to work. What do we do? What's our next step? There is so much wrong about this. <laughs> this is ridiculous. The big bowl of wrong. It's a complete misunderstanding about you know what Jan's husband's issues are. He's suffering from depression. So you know, I question really what you're expecting to get out of surveillance in that kind of scenario. But even if you're going to go to the trouble of hiring an investigator to do surveillance, you know. Catching somebody, you know, walking their dog and, you know, it seems that the dog got away and he ran after him. What on earth does that prove about depression? I mean, listen, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. But I mean, this is common sense. You know, this does not mean that it's not you're a broken not hip here. No, it's not. <laughs> the, you know, this is a mental health claim. This is not about your physical ability to catch a dog. And 
even if we change the fact scenario a little bit and let's say that Jan's husband was, you know, not just running after a dog, but was running with the dog every day. It still doesn't prove anything. Could be therapy. It could well be therapy. I'm quite sure that many doctors would suggest that would be a great thing for her husband to do, but it doesn't necessarily make it a cure, and nor does it mean that he can go back to work. It's absurd. So them taking this position makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So what do you do? Well, the first thing you do is you want to start a legal claim right away. The reason you want to do that is because until you do, you're not going to get the particulars of the surveillance. Right. And that's really ah. important because until you've started a legal claim, they don't have to produce it to you. They can just cut you off and they can cherry pick whatever details they want out of that surveillance. And if there's anything in there that in any way supports them cutting you off, they're going to use that as they have here. Mm. Oh, he's running after a dog. That must mean he's not depressed. I mean, it's ridiculous, but you know that's the best detail that they can pull out of it. So that's what they're pulling sure. out of it. But guess what? You start a legal claim, you ask for their full productions, and you see the surveillance report. That's going to show you a lot more than just the details they've cherry-picked to cut you off. That's going to show you how much surveillance was done, and that's really important. So I have, for example, I have a claim where my client was cut off under fairly similar circumstances, obviously not running after a dog, but they cherry-picked a couple of details out of it. But what I found out was they'd hired this investigator to do surveillance over five days, and there was about 60 hours of surveillance that was done. And in those 60 hours, they had a total of 90 minutes of surveillance of my client being outside her house, and at every point, she was you know with her mother who was helping her do things, and she wasn't doing anything more than driving. But they still found little things that they could use and take out of context to support their decision to right. cut off my client. But when you see the context, when you see that over five days and 60 hours, she was out of her house for 90 minutes, Ooh. that doesn't help them. That helps my client. Right. You know, That just shows that this is someone who is not leading a normal life who is not out there, you know, enjoying her life the way that somebody would normally be enjoying their life. And so, you know, until you start the claim, until you request the full details of that surveillance, you're not going to know everything that's behind it. I mean, you'll know what you're doing in your life, so you may know that what they're doing isn't kosher. But that's still, you know, you'd still want to see what is behind that. And in a scenario like that, where they are very clearly and very obviously taking out of context what you are doing to support cutting you off and not revealing to you that they have information that really undermines everything that they're saying, what that's doing is not fulfilling their duty to treat you with good faith. An insurance company has that duty. They have to treat their insureds with good faith. And if they don't do that, They're exposing themselves to punitive damages, which means that they can be on the hook not just for what they owe you for the disability. They can be on the hook for much more than that as punishment for failing to treat you fairly. They have to be fair in how they deal with you. Now, that doesn't mean that they're always going to be fair and doesn't mean you're always going to nail them for it, be able to nail them for it. But in a situation where they're very obviously taking something out of context and it's easy to show it because there's a surveillance report that shows the exact opposite of what they're suggesting, that's really strong evidence. And it puts them in a terrible position and puts you in a very good position. And when it comes time to start negotiating, you're going to find that all of a sudden they're much more willing to talk about mm-hmm. how many years of benefits you're going to be entitled to down the road. So, uh, Samantha, let me ask you this. So if uh, what happens if a person on disability uh, doesn't comply with their treating doctor's recommendations, not the insurance doctor they want to send you to, your own treating doctor, does that affect your claim? 
Yes, it does. And, and, you know, the general principle is that you have a duty to mitigate. And what does right. that mean? It means you have a duty to try and get better. And whether, you know, you're dealing with a long-term disability claim or an injury after an accident, you can't just, uh, you know, sit back, not do anything. That said, you know, some people don't, you know, mesh with their doctor. Sometimes you go to a doctor and doctor's saying you should do X, Y, and Z. And you're saying, well, you know, this medication is affecting me in, in, in a way that's not good, right? It's making me nauseous or whatever. Hopefully the doctor is listening to you. To the extent that your treating physician is either not listening to you or, you know, you have an issue with what they're prescribing to you, there is no reason why you can't get a second opinion, and, you know, will it affect your claim? Maybe it will. Let us deal with that. Okay, we'll deal with the legal implications of that. You should be doing what's best for you because ultimately, you know, we're talking a lot about money here and about people's legal rights, but you have to do what you need to do to get better. That's the ultimate goal. Unfortunately, insurance companies often put you in a position where you don't have the opportunity to do that because you have to battle them for the benefits you're entitled to. But yes, it can affect your entitlements. But again, if you're in that situation, give us a call and maybe we can give you some suggestions on how to deal with it. Uh, One exception that I would mention is where somebody has been uh, recommended to undergo surgery by their doctor, but it's not, uh, you know, a matter of life and death. In those cases, you have to look at how reasonable a decision might be to not undergo surgery because it's not always cut and dry. There's always going to be risks with surgery. And you can reasonably disregard your doctor's advice in some circumstances where they say that you probably should have surgery. Like if a knee replacement or something that's not life-threatening, you mean? Yeah, it could be something like that. I'm thinking right. you know, more of cases where um, someone is uh, looking to have fusion surgery in their right. spine, right, right, right. Um, where it's, it severely limits your mobility afterwards. Um, you're generally safer for having done it, but there are significant downsides. So I don't think an insurer could um, rightly rely on your refusal to undergo what could be dangerous and harmful surgery as a basis for, you know, denying your benefits. But, um, you know, that's a very specific scenario. A lot of stuff covered here today. The number as we uh, wrap it up, one 990 9646 The email is help at the Again, if you want to find out the pain and suffering component of your claim, as far as the dollar amount is concerned, the range, uh, injurycalculator.ca as well. Till next time, the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.